Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with Ukraine continuing to hold firm against the Russian invaders as the war approaches its second week. As of today, 82 percent of the Russian forces that Vladimir Putin staged at the Ukrainian border are now inside that country. And they continue to bombard Ukraine's cities and towns with indiscriminate missile strikes, forcing emergency crews into harm's way to dig through the rubble for survivors. The daylight reveals the extent of Putin's senseless destruction, neighborhoods pulverized by Russian missiles, homes completely leveled, and flames still smoldering among the charred remains. Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, has been under continuous assault for days and is now surrounded by Russian forces. And while they've held out against the assault so far, they've inc- they're increasingly desperate and running short on food. Bombing and shooting and we don't know how to sleep and what will, how we will live tomorrow. Please, we don't have enough food for for my baby. Russia is now claiming control of the strategic port city of Kherson, where Russian tanks can be seen in the streets. And the city's major and the city's mayor says that they're waiting for a miracle. Meanwhile, the U.N. is estimating that the death toll is in the hundreds. They say the real number is believed to be considerably higher. And Ukrainian officials are reporting that more than 2000 civilians have lost their lives to Russia's aggression. Additionally, according to the U.N., more than 800,000 refugees have now fled the country, with thousands more to follow, putting Europe on the brink of a major humanitarian crisis. All of this for the maniacal quest of a single man who is so obsessed with crushing Ukraine, he's willing to choke off his entire country from the rest of the developed world. At this stage, Putin is so isolated that in overwhelming 141 nations, voted at the U.N. today to condemn his invasion. Only four countries took Russia's side in voting against the resolution. Belarus, Syria, Eritrea, and North Korea. Despite the destruction Putin has, has wrought, we continue to see courageous scenes of resistance from the Ukrainian people, like these residents in the southern Ukraine who were undeter- undeterred by an armed Russian soldier who fired his weapon in the air. They bravely confronted him and his company, blocking their convoy from proceeding. We've heard varying estimates of the number of Russian troops killed in action, but two Western officials tell NBC News that Russia has lost nearly 6,000 of their troops so far. And while NBC News cannot independently verify that figure, it far exceeds the number of U.S. troops lost in Iraq more than a, in more than a decade of war and attempted occupation. Ukraine is now asking for more anti-tank weapons to take out the 40-mile-long column of Russian ground forces that's been trying to reach Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, for days. That convoy is currently stalled outside the city, plagued by logistical issues and supply line failures. In other words, it's literally a sitting duck. But without the capacity to take it out, Ukraine could be watching a slow-motion catastrophe in the making. Joining me now is Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs of California, who recently visited Ukraine as part of a congressional delegation. She's a member of the House Foreign Affairs and Armed Services Committees. Oleksiy Sorokin, political editor for the Kyiv Independent and NBC News senior international correspondent Keir Simmons live in Moscow. So I'm going to go um, in reverse order. And Mr. Sorokin, I want to start with you and ask, you know, what the situation is on the ground. How dire is it and how dire are the expectations of what's to come? Well, we're seeing increased 
shelling of uh, residential areas in Kharkiv, Mariupol, Kherson, Mykolaiv, and Kiev. As we speak, Kiev is being bombed. We we have reports that downtown Kiev is suffering from airstrikes. We're yet to confirm this, but we can see that in the past two days, uh, the shelling of residential areas has drastically increased. Is there any, um, you know, any idea inside of Kiev, inside of Ukraine, from what you've been able to determine, that anyone has any intention of surrendering to the Kremlin and allowing the Kremlin to take over your country? No, this is absolutely impossible because we understand that the major goal of uh, President uh, Vladimir Putin is to destroy Ukraine, and that's Ukrainians will never agree to this. That's why we see increased shelling, is that the talks between Ukraine and Russia have broke down two days ago, and now Russia is trying to force the Ukrainian government to speak uh, and to agree to their terms with the lives of civilians. Let me go to you, Kier. Um, there is news that there is a, there are supposed to be a second round of peace talks uh, in Belarus. Yeah. Um, the challenge there, of course, is safety. Um, you know, having the delegation that goes to uh, negotiate with the Russians be safe uh, in a country, Belarus, that is on the side of the Russians. Um, is yeah. that are those talks going to happen? Um, do you anticipate that they're going to happen while there is still active shelling and violence being committed by Russia uh, in Ukraine? This is a good there question, Joy. Obviously for, I'm sorry, for Kier. The, yeah. I mean, look, uh, Joy, it's a good question. Just before I stood in front of the camera, we heard this news of explosions heard in Kiev, so uh, it sounds as if uh, the Russians continue their assault and those really aren't the conditions for talks. The terrible truth about war is that sometimes the two sides need to talk, even if they're not peace talks, uh, just in order to agree uh, sometimes some terms, sometimes just to ensure that supply lines, if they are targeted in this case, and if they are NATO supply lines, what would be the implication of that? So, so there can be reasons uh, to meet and talk. You know, Joy, I thought that was something really interesting uh, that Secretary Blinken uh, said today. Uh, and I'll just quote what he said. He said, if Russia pulls back and pursues diplomacy, we stand ready to do the same. And it's interesting because we've talked on multiple evenings about this need to try to find some way to give President Putin a chance to back out of this if he even wants to, despite everything that's happened. And to hear Secretary Blinken uh, say, we stand ready to do, to do the same about diplomacy, but also seemingly from that sentence about pulling back, is that the Secretary of State suggesting that if Russia stopped its combat, that the West, for example, would halt its ratcheting up of sanctions in order to try to come to some kind of agreement. It may not be that. It may be just a forlorn hope. Truth is that the Russians are still pursuing their objectives and the Ukrainians are still defending their country. And in that context, peace talks seem pretty uh, unlikely. And if they do happen, pretty unlikely to reach any kind of uh, important, useful agreement. Very quickly for you, Kier, on, on that point. You're in, in Moscow. How much are the 
sanctions biting in terms of ordinary people? Um, you know, I've read stories about people being unable to use Apple Pay, being unable to use, you know, their, yeah. their, their metro cards to get on the subway and that kind of thing. How much are people actually feeling the economic impacts of what the sanctions are doing? Well, there was this kind of tranche of blows, economic blows, if you like, earlier in the week from the doubling of interest rates to 20% to people worrying about trying to get currency. It's settled a little bit, I would say, in these few days, although I've sort of spoken to you before about the ripping of the culture between the cultural ties between this part of the world and the West and what an impact that would have. But interesting story tonight, uh, Joy, uh, from Reuters. Uh, citing a, a shipping uh, website saying that it is seeing super yachts from the oligarchs uh, turning up in the Maldives. And of course, the Maldives does not have an extradition treaty with the US. So are Russia's super rich trying to put some clear blue water between themselves and the president of Russia? Possibly. Certainly, I suspect they are deeply worried. But again, another question being, can they even influence the president if they are here in, in Russia and if they do have access to him? Because the truth is that the people who are really close, close to President Putin, his bodyguards, the people in the FSB, as it's now called, used to be called the KGB. And, and we are told that they are deeply loyal and, and would die for him, frankly. Uh, and, and Mr. Sorkin, I apologize for the traffic jam. And you, you wanted to answer the question about peace talks, because it's hard for me to imagine Ukraine being interested in having any talks with uh, with the Kremlin while the bombs are still falling. Oh, yes. Um, I would say that uh, the peace talks will definitely happen. Ukraine has to agree to peace talks. Ukraine has to show that uh, the leadership of Ukraine has to show that it uh, cherishes lives. It tries to prevent Russia from shelling residential areas. But unfortunately, we understand that these peace talks are will lead to nowhere because the positions of Russians and Ukrainians are so far apart. Yeah. Russians want to destroy Ukraine and install a puppet government. And Ukraine wants basically their independent state to survive. Yeah. Uh, let me bring you in, Congresswoman. Um, we have a, refu a refugee crisis. A, a, you know, Europe is absorbing, you know, nearly a million people. And we don't know how many that how high that could go. Um, we we have, you know, the inability really of the U.S. to directly do anything about it because of the NATO issue. President Zelensky issued a message to Jews worldwide this morning. It's heartbreaking. He, he said, I appeal to all the Jews of the world. Don't you see what is happening? That is why it is very important that you millions of Jews do not remain silent right now because Nazism is born in silence. So shout about killing killing civilians, shout about killing Ukrainians. A very heartfelt uh, message from this man. Um, the United States chimed in, um, you know, with a resolution. And it's just a resolution supporting Ukraine, stating our principles. Three Republicans voted against that. Thomas Massey of Kentucky, Paul Gosar of Arizona, and Matt Rosendale. Um, I don't understand why anyone would vote against it do you have any sense of why anyone would be against that resolution? And what do you think the U.S. does next? 
You know, as a Jewish American myself, I think President Zelensky's words were deeply moving. Um, and I think it's important that we look at uh, the targeting of civilians, both in Ukraine, as we're seeing right now, but also we've seen these very tactics that Russia is using in Ukraine uh, that they've used in places like Syria and elsewhere. Um, and it's important that when, when we say never forget, we mean it for everywhere, not just places in Europe. Um you know, I, I can't speak to why some of my Republican colleagues have voted against this resolution. They tend to vote against everything. So um, I but I do think that it's important um, that this resolution was a, a bipartisan message showing that Congress stands united with the Ukrainian people, just as we saw last night with the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S. at, at the State of the Union as as First Lady Biden's uh, guest, um, but that we are also doing what we need to do to help the Ukrainian people. That means uh, increasing the security assistance that we're doing. It means making sure we're getting humanitarian assistance to the people of Ukraine. And it means supporting the Europeans as they are absorbing these refugees. And frankly, I think lifting our own refugee cap so that we can take Ukrainians into the United States and anyone fleeing uh, the horrors of war and conflict. Um, Kira, to go back to you just for a moment, because all of this, and I, I think I've been saying this every day since this began, uh, and I hate to be a bit of a broken record here, but the question of whether Vladimir Putin is thinking rationally, um, is, is rational at this stage, I think is still extant. I think we still have to, to think about it. And I wonder if there are any signs inside of Moscow that people are concerned about his level of rationality, because, you know, Lloyd Austin, our secretary of defense, in an interview with Lester Holt, in which he says it's hard to even predict where he goes from here. There doesn't seem to be an obvious way out. Are there questions being raised about whether this man is is fully tethered? Uh, I think that there are people asking themselves questions about where he's at uh, in his mental state in this sense, certainly. Uh, he is somebody who has spent 20 years on the throne, if you like. He is uh, long in this job. And for anyone, that produces a person who really believes in their own opinions. And if anyone who knows uh, Vladimir Putin's history uh, over that period of time will know what I'm talking about when I say there are multiple people who were close to him who are no longer close to him. Uh, so in a that sense, you can talk about him being isolated. We were just joy looking back at the essay that he wrote about Ukraine and Russia last year, which is, was clearly actually, in his mind, a kind of a, a philosophical setup for what he's doing now. And in that, he uses the first person the whole time. I this, I that, I believe this. So self-centered might be a description. Isolated might be another one. But fundamentally, the, the question is, what decisions are, is, is he going to make next? Yeah, it is. It is a conundrum and a, and a bloody and awful one. Um, Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, uh, Alexi Sorokin, please stay safe. Uh, Keir Simmons, please stay safe. All of you. Thank you very much. Appreciate you. Next up on the readout, targeting the Russian oligarchs. New sanctions are coming. But how much influence do they really have over the dictator in Moscow? And I feel so tired and I feel so, I think like I might be in facing depression because I've never been in such situation far from my family and I don't know what will happen later and I'm being put in the worst situations and I don't know what to do. Did you ever think war would come to Ukraine? Never. The moving and horrifying stories of people desperately trying to escape Ukraine as Putin's invading troops swarm in. The readout continues after this. 
Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Paget, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. As we continue to watch the invasion of Ukraine, it should be clear by now that Vladimir Putin has no qualms about waging an indiscriminate and gruesome war against innocent men, women and children. He's done it in Chechnya. He's done it in Syria. And now he's doing it in Ukraine. Thinking that past his prologue, Putin invaded Ukraine, expected complete capitulation. Well, he was wrong. He badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. According to U.S. intelligence, this miscalculation has left Putin increasingly frustrated by his military struggles in Ukraine and may see his only option as doubling down on violence. Impervious to criticism, Putin is unlikely to back down. The editor-in-chief of one of the few independent newspapers in Russia, who has himself been a target of Putin, told The New Yorker, Putin will never leave power of his own will. His entourage is quite convinced that without Putin, there is no Russia. However, in Russia, there are glimmers of hope and resistance as people continue to take to the streets to protest Putin's unprovoked war on the Ukrainian people. In St. Petersburg, Russian police detained an elderly woman who appears to be a well-known survivor of the Nazi siege on Leningrad, Yelena Osipova. Earlier today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke directly to those Russian people. We know many of you want no part of this war. You, like Ukrainians, like Americans, like people everywhere, want the same basic things. Good jobs, clean air and water, the chance to raise your kids in safe neighborhoods, to send them to good schools, to give them better lives than you had. How in the world does President Putin's unprovoked aggression against Ukraine help you achieve any of these things? How is it going to make your lives better? The economic costs that we've been forced to impose on Russia are not aimed at you. Frustrated by the horrific scenes that we are all witnessing, many are asking why NATO has not intervened on Ukraine's behalf, including Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who has argued that Putin has forced NATO's hand. Tom Nichols, the former Republican and professor of national security affairs at the U.S. War College, who wrote a book on nuclear weapons, pushed back on the call for NATO engagement, warning, we should not take this bait. There is no good strategic reason to give Putin what he wants. 
Tom Nichols, contributing writer for The Atlantic, joins me now, along with Nina Khrushcheva, professor of international affairs at the New School. I want to start, go back to where we started here, uh, Nina, because, you know, I, I think a lot of people are sort of trying to read Putin's mind here. He clearly miscalculated um, on the way that his troops would be greeted. They're not being greeted as liberators. The people of Ukraine are going to fight him to the last to the last man and woman and child. I mean, they're fighting. Um, they're not going to capitulate and become an appendage of Russia. They want no part of it. And so, you know, the question is then what is what is his plan C, right? There doesn't seem to be a way out, a way to back down. And I wonder what you make of the fact that he's going in further, because it just seems logical that the more violence you inflict on the Ukrainian people, the more they're going to hate them, the more they're going to hate those troops and hate the occupation. It doesn't make sense to me. Can you help us to sort of get in this guy's head a little bit? I don't think I can, because it does seem, I mean, he clearly We've seen Putin for 22 years. We know he doesn't back down. He's never backed down. Uh, so he's going further with more violence, with more attacks, with more occupation. Although uh, in Russia, we were told so many times there will not, not be, there will not be, uh, there will be no occupation. And uh, uh, so it does seem that essentially there is no exit plan to this but how he's going to play it out i don't know because already the ministry of defense had to admit that almost 500 people 500 uh, russian soldiers have died and for before that it was they were saying only the ukrainians are dying but of course the russians are uh, all perfect and everything is good but there are already mothers of those soldiers speaking out the people you mentioned that speaking out i am very i don't know how it's going to be resolved but i am absolutely fascinated that he would miscalculate like that i don't know what kind of ukraine he have he has written about ukraine he has spoken about ukraine he is from the soviet union how could he possibly not know that ukraine is going to fight for the to the death when we all know that it will and yeah. it would and it would have anyway uh that is absolutely beyond me so he's clearly living in some world that is no longer have any any relevance to any reality and it's just all in his head and, and opposition figures like alexei navalia are urging the russian people to take this opportunity to get out there and protest and make your voices heard you are seeing protests and lots of arrests i wonder how much information real you know it's unsanitized by the kremlin information people in russia get is he able to close that country in a closed loop of information or, or or as you said is it the body bags that are telling the story well it's the body bags but also they were actually just yesterday they uh forbade um uh transmission of two uh, very independent liberal sources one is the echo Moscow, the echo of moscow the radio station another one rain tv dodged uh because they were the ones that were interviewing ukrainians they were showing the bombing of kiev they were showing the siege of of um of Kharkiv and all these other uh, all these other places but also let's remember that these are very close nations they were many people who are relatives so we have relatives there and so i talk to friends and relatives in kiev and so they're telling me and they're telling others what's going on they send pictures yeah. so information is available although of course it is sanitized by 
uh, by other narratives. And also it is forbidden to use words like war, like occupation. Hmm. You were, we are supposed to call it special operation. Hmm. Uh, let me go to you on this, Tom, because I've been fascinated watching your back and forth interactions with Adam Kinzinger, who um, obviously serves this country in the United States military. Uh, he's a member of, uh, of, the, of the United States Congress. He, he's a pretty knowledgeable guy. But I was surprised. I've been surprised how many people are raising the prospect that NATO should get involved, that NATO should do something, because that's World War III. Um, can you just sort of walk us through this? Why? Because it feels, I think it feels hor- horrifying to a lot of Americans to watch people suffer, although we did it in Syria and we did it in Chechnya and we've done it in other places, in Mogadishu, et cetera. But to watch people suffer and die without NATO acting, can you just walk us through why we're not? Part of the problem is, since the end of the Cold War, I think too many of us um, have really internalized the notion that the Americans have no real peer and that we can kind of act at will. And if something bad happens in the world, um, we can fix it because that's our nature. We're doers. We're, you know, we're we're not bystanders, even though, um, you know, I I mean, in the case of Syria, I, I was arguing for an intervention to stop the bloodshed in Syria, you know, 400 deaths ago, uh, 400,000 deaths ago. And yet people said, well, you know, we don't that one we don't feel um, strongly about. In this case, I think, you know, people have just replaced Ukraine with sort of generic country um, and that we can just do this. And they're not thinking through uh, that, you know, this isn't the world isn't that new. Um, that this is a different, this is different than Syria. This is different than uh, Mogadishu and that, you know, there are real risks here. But the, I wanted to say one other thing about this that I think people aren't thinking about. Even if you believed that Putin wouldn't, that at some point Putin might back down, he really, that this wouldn't turn into World War Three. I cannot understand why people are determined to get Putin out of the disaster he has created. Um, because as Nina, as Nina points out, you know, Russians have telephones and friends in Ukraine and family and a NATO intervention could be the one thing. I don't think it would save the Ukrainians at this point. And I think it would be the one thing that would rally the Russian nation around Putin. I think at this point, Putin, if he prays at all, might be praying for a NATO intervention um, because it would give him a clear and definable enemy to go against. I think this terrible miscalculation, and I completely agree with Nina, it is almost inconceivable that he would be so completely in a bubble and forget everything he ever knew about Ukraine to think that he could do this and and he'd be greeted as a liberator somehow. Um, I, I think... Um, you know, he really is in that kind of bubble where the one enemy he'd be able to put his finger on and right. say, this is the this is the fight I want. It's with NATO. Yeah. And um, I, I just not, I think we want to just do something because we're good people and we have empathy. But I, I think people just aren't thinking this through. You're absolutely right. I mean, he's been trying to argue that the government in uh, Ukraine is just a puppet of the Americans and of NATO, that would prove that would give him a reason to keep saying it. And also World War Three between two nuclear powers. That is madness. Uh, Tom Nichols, I wish we had more time. Nina Khrushcheva, thank you both very much. Still ahead. Um, follow the rubles. The amount of money Putin's cronies are believed to have siphoned from the Russian economy is jaw dropping. Now, President Biden says that we're going to take it all away. The question is how we'll get into that next. Next. 
Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Tonight, I say to the Russian oligarchs and the corrupt leaders who built billions of dollars off this violent regime, no more. The United States Department of Justice is assembling a dedicated task force to go after the crimes of the Russian oligarchs. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We're coming for you, ill-begotten gains. And President Biden is wasting no time making good on that promise. NBC News has learned that the administration could announce expanded sanctions against Vladimir Putin's cronies as soon as tomorrow. The intention here is that by squeezing Putin's inner circle, it could put pressure on the ex-KGB officer to stand down. Today, the Justice Department announced the task force that Biden alluded to. We will leave no stone unturned in our efforts to investigate arrest, and prosecute those whose criminal acts enable the Russian government to continue this unjust war. For decades, these oligarchs have sheltered their extraordinary, and in some cases stolen wealth, outside of Russia, in secret accounts, and by acquiring vast amounts of real estate and other assets like yachts and private jets. As New York Times columnist Paul Krugman describes it, the sums involved are mind-boggling. Researchers estimate that in 2015, the hidden foreign wealth of rich Russians amounted to around 85% of Russia's GDP. Now, to give you some perspective, this is as if a U.S. president's cronies had managed to hide $20 trillion in overseas accounts. Wow. Joining me now is Hagar Chamali, a former spokesperson for the U.S. Mission to the United Nations and the U.S. Treasury Department and host of Oh My World on YouTube. Um, thank you so much for being here. Um, I, 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 I think we're stealing from Ali Velshi. I saw you talking with Ali and it was a brilliant conversation. So I'm so glad that I can I can nick you from him because you were great. And I guess my first question is this, because um, Ambassador Michael McFaul earlier today it made a really solid point, I think, that there are two kinds of oligarchs, right? They're the kind of oligarchs who, like, are stunning in Europe. They're in London. You know, they, they own lots of yachts and they're moving their yachts right now and running away. And then they're the, the ones who, who own, like, the big oil conglomerates inside Russia, the Gazprom, the people behind things like that. So I wonder if these kinds of sanctions actually hit the ones who matter and the ones who need Putin. Uh, I'll just give you some examples. CNBC is reporting oligarchs are moving their yachts. The U.S. is looking to hunt down and freeze their assets. Rome Roman Abramovich, one of them, is, is shopping this Chelsea football club um, to try to sell it. Is that, are those even the oligarchs that count? They all kind of count in different ways. And I, I mean, I see why the ambassador is dividing them into two, because he's talking about those that 
the former leader Boris Yeltsin had created. And one of President Putin's main arguments during campaigning against Boris Yeltsin was, you know, look at the corruption he created when it was hypocritical, because then he went ahead and created his own oligarchs and corruption. But at the end of the day, all of the oligarchs support President Putin and Putin's regime, and they all benefit equally from each other. They, they each need the other side. And so when you're targeting the oligarchs, it's not just about the possibility that they might convince President Putin to stop the aggression. It's getting at the possibility that President Putin might ask them to hide and evade his own assets. It's getting at the way they prop up President Putin himself personally, the regime, Russia's economy, obviously, which you alluded to. It's the idea of disrupting and dismantling all of the Kremlin's networks, financial networks. And so the Russian oligarch arm of that is a key aspect of it. A bonus of it would be if they convince President Putin to change his mind. How do you find the money, though? Because here's the thing. Is it, you know, what, what, you know, I'm a layperson at this, but, you know, it seems that Putin is good at hiding as well. There are people who said he's a trillionaire, but nobody can find it. It's in all these LLCs. He finds all these creative accounting ways of hiding the money. I'm sure these the people who the ones who count the, the gas problem guys, whoever we want to get at, are also hiding their money. How do we find it? Sure. Well, it's typical for these types of leaders and oligarchs to create these kind of very complicated ownership structures to hide their wealth, to, to, to not show who controls a bank account or business or who's the beneficial owner. And ultimately, the government's Treasury Department, in partnership with Europeans and others, hunt and find those assets. So the Treasury Department in particular has its own intelligence shop. In fact, it's the only finance ministry in the world that has its own intelligence shop. So it's all these intel analysts who collect it, who, sorry, they don't collect, they receive information and analyze it with the only purpose of this mission to disrupt and dismantle these financial networks. And so when anytime the U.S. Treasury sanctions a target, you can think of it as the center of an onion. And once it's sanctioned, they continue to hunt down and identify and expose that entire network because it's part of enforcing the sanction. So the idea that like it's a name on a press release and that's it, it just doesn't work like that. It's it, they map out the whole network and they work with the private sector to ensure that if there's a bank account or a business that they're not aware is owned, in fact, by President Putin or one of these oligarchs, they will either publicly sanction that business or bank account or whatever later on, or it, depending on what it is, they may go to the financial institution directly and say, hey, yeah. you may not be aware, but this is who actually owns this account. What are the chances that uh, some uh, U.S. players uh, get uncovered when you start uncovering where people are hiding their money? You know, there have been lots of stories about straw donations that have gone into, I don't know, some Republican coffers here and there. Some senators have been named, um, have, you know, maybe, you know, we don't know. Like, are, if is there a possibility that this hunt turns up some Americans who are maybe doing business? Do we want, do we find out oh, Donald Trump or somebody else is doing business with them. And if that information comes up and it's Americans or straw donors that are in the United States, what happens to them? It's always a possibility. It's not something that Treasury pursues. Usually when things like this have happened, you've had, for example, leaks like the Panama Papers. Mm. And those those documents ended up on, they ended up unleashing and exposing all sorts of individuals who were involved in shady financial structures and transactions and so on. So you may end up having something like that. But if 
an American person in, is involved, it's not usually the Treasury Department that handles it. If if th- that's usually that falls then to law enforcement, so the Department of Justice oh, God. and the FBI and what they do, that's more money laundering. For example, if they're involved in money laundering or corruption, these are against U.S. law. Yeah. And so it's a legal procedure that ends up taking place after that. And then we go right back to the DOJ that won't even like prosecute Donald Trump, but then it, that's a whole nother conversation. And then I guess the last question would be, let's say that one of these oligarchs has, you know, lots of yachts or, or they've got some sort of property that gets seized in this process. What does the Treasury Department do with it? Do they sell it? Does the money go to the, you know, into the American coffers? Like what happens to these these, these properties? Yes, the seizure of any kind of criminal assets goes to a slush fund for future law enforcement activities. So usually, yes, they'll they'll probably sell off the assets, but any proceeds made from that or any cash, any all of it goes into a slush fund for future law enforcement activity. And uh, what we're showing you there on the screen, I mean, put it back up, is six oligarchs, Oleg Deripaska. You've probably heard a lot on the Rachel Maddow show. She's talked a lot about some of these guys, Lynn Blavatnik, Alexei um, Kuzmachev, uh, you Eugene Schwindler, Dmitry Rybolovyev, um, you might have heard as well. Um, total cost of the real estate they own just in this country, in New York City alone, $588 million. So we're talking big, big money. Hey, Garchamali, don't make too many plans for the 7 p.m. hour weekdays, Monday through Friday. Uh, you're great. Thank you so much. We appreciate you being here tonight. All right, I'll be right back. <laughs> Breaking news tonight in the January 6th investigation, the House Select Committee is expected to submit a court filing laying out new details of Trump lawyer John Eastman's campaign to persuade former Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the election. Now, you'll remember Eastman authored that infamous memo outlining a six point plan for Pence to overturn the presidential election in seven states. He was also a speaker at the rally that preceded the deadly siege on the Capitol. The Washington Post reports the filing is expected to reference testimony from two of Pence's top aides, Mark Short and Greg Jacob, explaining Eastman led a pressure campaign against Pence they believed was at Trump's behest, including a last-ditch effort to get Pence to change his mind and not certify the results in violation of the Electoral Count Act. And joining me now is Congressman Pete Aguilar of California, member of the January 6th Select Committee and Congressman. And let's just get right into it. It, it seems that um, part of the request here is for Eastman to turn over um, search emails, to go through his emails and find any emails that mention lawmakers. And I'll just go through some of them. Andy Biggs, Mo Brooks, Louis Gohmert, Paul Gosar, Scott Perry, Jim Jordan, Senators Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Cindy Hyde-Smith, Lucia Lummis, Roger Marshall, and Tommy Tuberville. Uh, what is the timeline on getting that kind of compliance? And if that compliance doesn't happen in time for the hearings in April, then what? The timeline could be very quick. The judge could rule uh, in our favor and we would receive those documents. We've received thousands of documents already uh, from Dr. Eastman. And so uh, we continue to make significant progress. But uh, let's put a finer point on this. We're in this position because he has lost time and time again uh, in the court fighting uh, uh, submitting documents to us. We feel that are important to our investigation. Um, And so he is using every effort possible to put up a roadblock. And what we will lay out in the filing very clearly um, are uh, our steps and our reasons why we we will overcome those obstacles and ensure that uh, transparency is is ultimately what prevails here. Is there any sense that you believe that this could wind up being a, uh, a referral that goes to the Justice Department if these are violations of the Electoral Count Act, et cetera? It sounds like crimes. 
Well, that's not our job. Our job is to tell the truth, to find the facts, and to make sure we look at everything uh, that led up to January 6th. And uh, John Eastman was a very critical figure uh, in this effort to overturn the election. Uh, his conversations with those elected officials, his conversations with the, the then vice president and, and the former president, those are all important aspects of, of what we need uh, to get to the bottom of. And so that's what we plan to do. Uh, we're, the timeline, at least that as we understand it, would be some sort of interim report issued by June, hearings in about April. Is it possible that, that, that any of that could be done without interviewing the former president um, and interviewing even potentially, you know, some of his top aides, even including some who are at this point refusing to comply? Well, we always knew that uh, that folks around the president would would have a difficult time, uh, you know, coming forward and telling the truth. Uh, it's been our, our hope that uh, anyone who has information um, would want to aid in our investigation. This is obviously, you know, the first time um, uh, since uh, the War of 1812 that that uh, insurrectionists breach the Capitol. And so we would hope that people would want to help in our efforts to make sure that that never happens again. Mm -hmm. uh, but we are where we are. And so we're going to continue to make significant progress. We're going to continue uh, to interview individuals over 650 depositions and interviews so far. Mm -hmm. We're making significant progress, Joy. And I have to ask you this. Last night, it did strike me that President Biden did not mention January 6th in his State of the Union address. It was a year ago. Were you surprised that he didn't mention it? And do you think he should have? No, I wasn't because the president talked about this extensively. He came to the Capitol. Uh, he came to the scene of the crime uh, and gave an anniversary speech on January 6th that was moving. Um, and yesterday he spoke about protecting democracy. Uh, so all of that combined, you know, really shows me that uh, that he is supportive of our efforts, uh, that he's supporting of making sure that we do everything we possibly can uh, to protect democracy. Uh, and that we all understand how close we came to losing it on that day um, uh, 14 months ago. Congressman Pete Aguilar, thank you very much, sir. Appreciate uh, you being here tonight. And up next, as predicted, Putin's war is displacing hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian civilians. NBC's Cal Perry spoke with some of them, and their stories are devastating. Back after this. War is a tragedy in human terms, etched on the faces of Ukrainians like Katerina Belash, who spoke to NBC's Cal Perry about fleeing her ravaged home city of Kharkiv. I left Kharkiv two days ago when uh, things got worse and my house got bur burned by a bomb and uh, my my loved ones died. It was like giving your, pretty much giving your soul to God every second because we, our train stopped in the middle of Kiev and, and they were, you know, they were shooting and, and we heard bombs flying all over and, and planes and I thought this particular moment I can die. Mentally, how did you survive? I don't think I did. Cal Perry joins me now from Lviv. And, you know, it's heartbreaking to hear people saying, I didn't survive. I mean, psychologically, it's got to be devastating. The numbers right now that we've got are 875,000 people from UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Um, how does this look on the ground? Well, I think the number is so much higher, certainly when you look at the internally displaced persons. So many folks are stuck in the city that I'm at uh, in Lviv. And, and your description is perfect. Look, my access to the front line of this war is through the faces of the folks that are fleeing. And they look horrified and terrified and scared and they have nowhere to go. And I think 
we have to say that nobody expects to become a refugee. I mean, that's by definition sort of being a refugee. One moment your life is fine, and the next moment you're faced with this decision of how quickly can I get out of my house with my kids? What do I take? How do I flee? Where do I go? Once I get there, what do I do? And as we look at these numbers, I mean, we're headed towards a million people already having left Ukraine. I mean, this is going to change the course of families forever, families that are going to raise kids in foreign countries. The statistics on this are scary. One in three refugees who flee a zone like this return after mm. 10 years. Wow. And that one person out of three, you usually doesn't go back for 20 years. So you get an idea of the ripple effect. And it's 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 terrible. Yeah. And uh, we, the U.N. Uh, High Commission on Refugees um, has now announced it is one million people um, so far. Um, we've been hearing a lot of stories. So, yeah, you, there you go. Um, that it's 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 different for different refugees. Um, there are some harrowing stories of African uh, and other non-white uh, refugees, people who have been in Ukraine studying students who are being stopped uh, at the yep. border, particularly the border with Poland. Talk about the difference here, because it does seem that Europe is pretty much welcoming uh, Ukrainian refugees. But we know, having dealt with Syria and Afghanistan, that it's not always the case if you're not uh, a white uh, person in flight. No, and, and racism exists everywhere, right? I mean, that, that's the bottom line. And, and we're seeing these videos of folks being pushed off trains. Now, the people that I've spoken to at the Lviv train station, and these are individual interviews, say they haven't seen this. But we've seen the videos, and we now have this from the government. The government saying, the foreign minister saying, we've established an emergency hotline for African, Asian, and other students wishing to leave Ukraine because of Russia's invasion. And then this, also from the government, quote, Africans seeking evacuation are our friends and need to have equal opportunities to return to their home country safely. So the government is acknowledging that this has been an issue, that these reports are out there, that these videos are out there, and they're saying that they're addressing it. Um, you know, one of the issues here is that you have this human sea, you have these people just desperate to get anywhere, and a government that really is not equipped to handle the situation. Yeah. And, and how are the neighboring countries dealing with the incoming influx of people, Poland and other countries? Um, is there, are they prepared for it? Um, how are they preparing? Well, so Poland is preparing through the support of NATO, through UNHCR, through the Red Cross. Um, but your point about what's happening here in Europe is, is absolutely the, the point to make. I mean, the Syrian refugee crisis changed governments. I mean, the United Kingdom dropped out of the European Union because of a misinformation campaign about immigration. May sound familiar to a lot mm -hmm. of folks who are watching this. It shifted governments. Governments swaying to the right. Um, and that's something that I think these governments are going to be concerned about. They're already under the economic crunch of a pandemic. They're already dealing with internal issues. Um, and so for them, yeah, it's going to be a political concern. Absolutely. Bingo. Uh, that's why I love talking to you, Cal Perry, because, yep, you have the great context for us. Uh, Cal Perry, thank you very much. Stay safe. That is tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.